Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Two. Please stand when you get that. First Kings chapter two. Bible says, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. Father, we do surrender, just like that song said. We surrender our hearts to you this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. Let your word go out and find fertile ground in the heart of everyone here and change us to be a little bit more like your son today. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. On January 13, 2012, an Italian cruise ship, the coast of Concordia, partially sank off the coast of Tuscany with 4,252 people on board. 32 people died and 64 were injured. The captain, Francesco Chettina, was charged with abandoning incapacitated passengers and failing to inform maritime authorities. Crew members were not much more help as the passengers reported that many of them left them to fend for themselves. Rich Lowry at the National Review compared the crash of the coast of Concordia to the Titanic and how differently the men responded in each case. He writes... Every man for himself is a phrase associated with the deadly Costa Concordia disaster. An Australian, an Australian mother and her young daughter have described being pushed aside by hysterical men as they tried to board the lifeboats. A grandmother complained, I was standing by the lifeboats and men, big men, were banging into me and knocking the girls down. He finishes by saying, if the men of the Titanic had lived to read such a thing, they would have recoiled in shame. The Titanic's crew would surely have thought the hysterical men deserved to be shot on sight, and they would have volunteered to perform the service. Lowry seems to be blaming men for what happened on the Concordia, but I think that he partially misses the point. The guy's behavior is just a culmination that has been years in the making. Our society, the media, the government, and even women have demanded that any incentives men have for acting like men be taken away and have decried masculinity as being evil. Now they are seeing the result. Men have been listening to what society has been saying about them for more than 40 years. 
Things like they are wimps, cowards, jerks, good-for-nothing, bumbling deadbeats, and expendable. Well, sadly, some of the men have gotten that message, and they are acting accordingly. As the Bible says, as you sow, so shall you reap. The Concordia is just a microcosm of what is happening in our greater society. Men are opting out in response to the attack on their gender. A society can't spend more than 40 years tearing down almost half of the population and expect them to respond with, Yes, sir, may I have another? The war on men is suicidal for our society, and treating men like the enemy is dangerous, both to men and the society that needs their positive participation as fathers, husbands, role models, and leaders. This is basically what King David is trying to avoid as he encourages his son Solomon to be a man. Look at verse 1 with me. As David's time to die drew near, he commanded his son Solomon, saying, I am going the way of all the earth, so be strong and prove yourself a man. David was fortunate. Some people die so suddenly they never get the chance to say anything. But most people have some things that they would like to say before they die. What would you say if you had the chance? We all have to die sometime, and one good way to get ready to die is to think ahead to our dying words. What would you say if you knew you were about to die? What testimony would you give your family and friends? What spiritual legacy would you leave for your children and grandchildren? There are two parts to David's farewell discourse. The first part runs from verses 2 to 4 and mainly addresses Solomon's soul and the spiritual commitments a king needs to make if he belongs to the kingdom of God. The second part, which runs from verses 5 to 9, addresses the security of, of Solomon's kingdom and the judgments that he would need to make about his friends and his enemies if he wanted to hold on to that kingdom. The two parts of this speech are very different. In the first part, David gives general spiritual advice that could apply to almost anyone. But in the second part, he gives Solomon specific instructions about how to deal with particular people. The first part of the speech sounds more spiritual, while the second part of the speech sounds more political. The differences are so obvious that it has made some people think that it came from two different people. In fact, some scholars think that what David says in the second part of his speech is vindictive, contradictory, and ungodly, which we will be addressing next week. Verse 2 tells us that the road David was about to tread was barring the rapture, the path that all the earth must take. The horror of this thought, as in one's own death, for many, is surely the most despairing thing the human mind can contemplate. And yet for David, as for Joshua many years earlier, the reality of God's promise filled that moment and drove out any despair. This is Joshua 23:14. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. 
and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord has spoke concerning you has failed. They have all been fulfilled for you, and not one of them has failed. Only God's promises has that extraordinary type of power. From the human viewpoint, it was sunset for David and sunrise for his son Solomon, but not from the divine viewpoint. Proverbs 4.18 says, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. As a leader, according to 2 Samuel 23.4, David was as the light of the morning, even a morning without clouds. And for the sake of David, the Lord kept that lamp burning in Jerusalem. Even today, when we read and sing his psalms and study his life, that light shines on us and helps us to direct our way. At the end of his perfect life, Jesus had some famous last words of his own that offered forgiveness to his enemies and promised paradise to anyone who would trust him. Then Jesus finished his saving work by dying on the cross, suffering the violence and the death that we all deserve. But that was not the end, however. Jesus rose back from the dead to take his place on the eternal throne. Now, the apostles testified to these truths whenever they preached the gospel. And on occasion, they even made a direct connection with and contrast to King David. For example, Peter confidently preached that David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But he went on to proclaim a king who was not dead, but alive, when he wrote, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. Therefore, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Back to our account. David lies dying, but God's promises are still on David's mind. Indeed, how could he forget these words, especially as he's nearing the end of his life? How precious 2 Samuel 7:12 must have been to him right then, for it promised, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. One day also, Solomon would come to the end of his life, and David wanted him to be able to look back upon his life with satisfaction and no regret. Blessed is that person whose heart is right with God, whose conscience is clear, and who can look back and say with the Lord Jesus, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. David had been great because the Lord had been with him. Even when he failed, and his failures were sometimes spectacular, the Lord restored his kingdom and remained faithful to his promise. So as he's dying, he exhorts his 20-year-old son to be tough and become a man. 
It's interesting that David doesn't say, I want you to prove yourself a male, as it's a different word that's used here in the Hebrew, but it's a challenge to prove himself a man. You see, being a male and being a man are two completely different things. And being a male man is something altogether different. But despite the nonsense this culture is trying to shove down our throats, one's biological sex is absolutely determined at the point of conception. And no amount of surgeries or wearing high heels and lipstick is going to change that. Perhaps David sensed some weakness in Solomon here. Perhaps he knew that Solomon would be tested in greater ways than what he had been. Whatever the exact reason was, David knew Solomon needed strength and courage since great responsibilities require great strength and great courage. Have you ever been hoodwinked by the nonsensical idea that following God's ways are weak and feeble? Every serious believer knows it takes real courage to stand firm against temptation and the godless ways of this world. David was a man who spent time in the wilderness doing battle, killing giants, leaping over walls, and often risking his very life. Solomon, on the other hand, grew up in a palace, never knowing what it means to be chased by enemies or to be face to face with giants. Can you feel the emotion of this this morning? David is dying. And I can imagine him grabbing Solomon by the lapel of his shirt and saying, Son, listen to me. Show yourself a man. You see, I think David knew that Solomon grew up with a lot of cushion and cotton around him. David knew that Solomon didn't have to run from Saul for 16 years. He knew that Solomon didn't have to hide out in caves or even to have your own men to come after you trying to kill you. Now Solomon grew up with the proverbial silver spoon in his mouth, surrounded by servants who probably attended his every little whim. He was little Lord Fauntleroy, running around the palace with nannies chasing after him. So David has to say to him, hold on, boy. Do you think this is a game? Do you think this is just a gig? Do you think because you're my son, you're going to skate? No. You better be anticipating opposition and pushback. As you will know, you're flying over the right target when people are shooting at you. The least little thing can't put you in the fetal position. You are the king of Israel. I'm about to leave this world, and you'll have to show yourself a man if you're going to fulfill God's plan for your life. Okay, David, just how is Solomon supposed to do that? Verse 3, please. Do your duty to the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may fulfill his promise which he spoke re regarding me, saying, If your sons are careful about their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and all their soul, 
you shall not be deprived of a man to occupy the throne of Israel. The opening question of the book of 1 Kings is, who is going to sit on the throne of David? But by the end of these two chapters, all of the enemies will have been dealt with. Saul will be securely setting upon David's throne, now the unrivaled king. So David's charge to Solomon consists of two parts. The first part deals with Solomon's commitments to the Lord, while the second covers the way the younger man can secure his kingdom. And the order should be understood as significant, since the second without the first would be useless. David states that two vital benefits will result from Solomon's obedience. First, the king will prosper in anything that he attempts. Now, this blessing, of course, is of great interest to Solomon, who would naturally want a successful reign. Secondly, obedience will ensure God's ongoing pleasure with David's family. All the promises that have been made back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 will be fulfilled, including the eternal nature of David's kingdom. But Solomon's greatest enemy had not been removed. It was found in his own heart. The greatest threat to Solomon's reign is going to be Solomon himself. The Lord had made it clear through the mouth of his servant David that Solomon's greatest need was to walk in obedience and faithfulness before the Lord. This principle of blessing or judgment is going to shape all that happens as we study the book of Kings. So David knew what he was talking about. If we want to have God's blessing, we must walk in God's ways. That's the only way it works. This would be true for Solomon, who was blessed with more wisdom and more wealth than anyone in the history of the world. As long as he was obedient to the word of God, everything Solomon would do would be a success. But disobedience will be his downfall, as we will eventually discover. We need to remember that David was primarily a warrior, while Solomon was primarily a politician. Even more significant is the fact that David, for all his imperfections, trusted God throughout his life, while Solomon trusted more in his ability to negotiate a good treaty. And that is exactly what got him into trouble. Once he embraced negotiation and compromise as the main tenets of his foreign policy, things went downhill in a hurry. Instead of trusting the God who had promised to protect and defend Israel from all of her enemies, Solomon started negotiating treaties and business deals with the surrounding nations. This led to some overcrowding in the royal bedroom, as Solomon's wheeling and dealing netted him a mind-boggling 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the real trouble started when those ladies showed up on the palace step, not only lugging their luggage, but also their foreign gods as well. Suddenly, the palace was filled with idols, and it was only a matter of time before Solomon's heart was turned away from the God of his youth. 
But none of that is going to lead to happiness and contentment for Solomon. The book of Ecclesiastes, which most scholars believe that Solomon wrote near the very end of his life, reeks of sadness and regret. I often wonder if Satan considers Solomon's sad demise to be his own personal Mona Lisa. I wouldn't blame him if he did. Never has a man with the potential to soar so high sunk so low. And in the end, amazingly, it happened because Solomon didn't take his very own advice when he would write in Proverbs 4.23, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. You see, the central battle of life is the battle of our hearts. There is no substitute for maintaining a heart of faithfulness and a lifestyle of obedience. David understands what is important in life, and Solomon is going to reject all of it. He's going to attempt to discover his manhood and meaning through money, sex, or power. Or as they told me at one of the first pastor conferences I ever went to, we have to avoid the big three G's, gold, girls, and glory. And those are still the things that men try to substitute for God. There is truly nothing new under the sun. Sadly, Psalm is going to fail, and he is going to fail on an epic scale. Could this have been prevented? Absolutely. Okay, how? Look back at verse 3. David says, Do your duty to the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. David's last words to his son contain some important insights into leadership delivered by one of the greatest leaders in all of history. Solomon's strength would not come from the military or administrative measures, but from moral and spiritual vitality. You see, a good leader is not above God's law. He is under it. And strength is rooted in a person's relation to God and his word. The principal question this chapter asks is, how is the kingdom to be made secure and established? And the narrative answers it by obeying the covenant law of God. David is nearing the end. And so he's telling Solomon what absolutely matters most in life. Solomon is to show manhood and strength while walking in God's ways, which are clear as they are spelled out in his laws, commandments, rules, and admonitions. And that text assumes there will be no enjoyment of the blessedness of that promise unless the king remains faithful. David says it all in verse 4. Obedience is the internal means of kingdom security. That catches us by surprise, doesn't it? We normally don't think that way. Why, a kingdom is secure if it concludes advantageous trade agreements or cements a sophisticated case of alliances with other states or maintains a sizable and state-of-the-art military. But obedience 
the law of Moses? No self-respecting political scientist thinks that has much to do with state security. But we find the same sort of teaching sort of bleeding over into the New Testament. The man who hears Jesus' words and does them is like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. The storms come and the floods come and the winds of life may beat upon them, but they will not fall. That is the point of 1 Kings chapter 2. Whether it's a Davidic king or a disciple of Christ, true stability only comes through obedience to the Lord's commands. And what is true on the personal level also holds true to the people of God as a corporate body. Solomon would be strong and manly only as he ordered his life by God's commands. The priority of his personal life and his royal administration must be a commitment to God's will. The king of Israel was not like the pagan kings who were law unto themselves. No, he was a man under direct orders from God. And there the term statutes, commandments, ordinances, and testimonies do not need to be defined precisely and distinguished from each other, I don't think. I think together they just refer to the vast and varied body of law that the people of Israel had been forgiven, or been given. David understood this. In his own words, David wrote in Psalm 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. David tells his son, Walk in God's way, Solomon. Study the word, follow the word, and you will do well. We also see something in the order that God gave the law to his people, I think. God did not first give them the law and then deliver the people. No, he first delivered the people and then he gave them the law. Thus, we are not saved by the law, but for the law. The law can be how we regulate and measure our relationship with the Lord, but not how we merit that relationship. All this points to the ultimate way that we are saved, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And please, also please know that the promise that there would always be someone eligible to sit on the throne did not mean that every generation would automatically experience God's blessing. There was a condition for personal blessing of which David reminded Solomon. If your descendants walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul. That tells us the blessing was not just automatic and judgment was a possibility. Faithfulness, faithfulness meant not only a life conformed to God's standards, but also a heart that was committed to God's ways. This condition is central to the theology of 1 Kings, and it is a theme to which the Lord himself directed Solomon over and over again. 
And this brings up an important point. Some promises of God are unconditional, but there are some that have conditions attached. Philippians 4.19 is a great example. It says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Many people assume that this is for any Christian at any time and under any circumstance. But before we can make that application, there has to be first two other things. Observation, seeing what it says. Then interpretation, finding out what it means. And then finally, application, how it applies to us. So back to our verse, it says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Please notice that that word and is a connecting word to the previous verse, which reads, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Do you see the connection? These people have given sacrificially to the Lord's work, and because of that, Paul can assure them that God will meet their needs. By the way, it is needs and not greeds that God promises to provide, which leads me to my second example. Another greatly misapplied verse is Matthew 6:33. When Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. People think, cool. If I seek the kingdom of God, all these things that I desire are going to be added to my life. Things like that cherry red Porsche I've had my eye on, and that five-bedroom mansion with a hot spouse. But is that the correct interpretation? Once again, friends, this is the importance of context. What are the things that Jesus promises will be provided? All you have to do is back up two verses for the answer. This is Matthew 6:31. Do not worry then saying, what are we to eat? Or what are we to drink? Or what are we to wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all of these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need such things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So in context, what are the things that will be, will, that will be provided? Food and clothing. All I'm saying to us is always keep the context of scripture in mind, and you'll never go wrong. But David's main point, using all these different terms, that his son should live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not just this part or that part of the Bible that we should obey, but every last word. Especially the stuff that we don't agree with. There's not one situation Solomon faced in his life as a man or the rule of the kingdom that the Bible does not in some way address. So as we finish up today... What was true of Solomon is also true for us. There is not going to be one situation in life that the Bible does not address in some practical way. God's Word teaches us how to think, how to speak, and how to live. 
It tells us what we should love and what we should hate. It shows us how to glorify God forever. That is why the ministry of the church must be built squarely and unashamedly only on the Word of God. As James Boyce once said, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, the, un, the only unfallible rule of faith and practice. And it is practical because we believe the Bible must be the treasure most valued and attended in the church's life. That is so true. We read the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, and preach the Word so that we can believe its saving promises and obey its righteous commands. Listen to me. The best and only way to avoid wasting your life is to base everything you do on the Word of God. David reminded his son that there's a special covenant the Lord had made concerning the Davidic dynasty. He warned Solomon that if he disobeyed God's laws, he would bring chastening and sorrow to himself and the land. But if he would just obey God's commandments, God would bless him and the people. How tragic that Solomon didn't fully follow God's law and instead was the means of promoting idolatry in the land and then causing the kingdom to be divided. Our disobedience isn't going to cause a kingdom to be divided, but it can cause our hearts to be divided. It's what the Bible calls being lukewarm, neither being hot nor cold. And that is something that we must avoid at all costs. And although I don't say this every Sunday, if you are unsure of where you stand with God or you just have some questions, I'm always available to talk after service. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, everyone in here needs to be closer to you in some way. It is so easy to neglect my heart and feel it grow cold towards the things of your kingdom. Revive us today, not only with a greater hunger for your word, but actually a desire to do it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the week, we'll have communion together. Ask Pastor John to come up. We ask that you come up and take the elements and take them back to your seat, and then we'll take them together.